Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Hashtag Clocked In with me, your host, Jordan Edwards. I'm thrilled to have you tune in as we dive into the dynamic world of productivity, success, and stories of incredible individuals who've mastered the art of getting things done. Whether you're commuting, hitting the gym, or just relaxing at home, this podcast is the go-to source for inspiration and actionable tips to level up your productivity game. I'm on a mission to unravel the secrets of those who seem to effortlessly manage their time and achieve their goals. So if you're ready to clock in and unlock your full potential, you're in the right place. We've got a lineup of amazing guests, industry experts, and thought leaders who will share their insights and strategies to help us crush your to-do list and make the most out of every moment. Get ready to get inspired, motivated, and equipped with the tools you need to supercharge your productivity. This is Hashtag Clocked In with Jordan Edwards. Let's dive in. Kane is in the building. Hi, it's Jordan here with Clocked In, and I wanted to give a little introduction because I haven't done that before. So I'm Jordan Edwards. After graduating from UT, I started Edwards Consulting, which is personal development and personal finance. We help people become the best version of themselves. And today, I'm here with Rabbi Levy, who I had the opportunity to meet with at University of Tampa, and we've been meeting every Tuesday ever since. And we wrap to fill in and we kind of just learn about the Jewish religion. So in this podcast, we're going to go over what goes on in the life of a rabbi because to, to a lot of us, it's pretty mysterious. And I'm excited for this to go on. So Rabbi, just introduce yourself and then we'll hop in. Sure. My name is Rabbi Levi Rifkin. I'm a, a rabbi here in University of Tampa at Base Menachem Chabad and uh, do some outreach. And that's how I met Jordan. Perfect. So let's start off with your family history. Can you just tell us a little bit about your origins, how how you got here, how why Tampa? Sure. Um, my uh, upbringing, uh, I was one of ten, and my mother's one of eight. My father's one of six. Uh, both of them are from post. Uh, they come from Russia and Poland, and they have. Uh, a long history of Jewish commitment, Jewish life following the Torah and its commandments. Uh, goes back many generations, centuries, all the way, I would say we could even trace it all the way back to Abraham. But uh, more recent, the great uh, Maharal of Prague, uh, Rabbi Yehuda Lowy of the 16th century in Prague, his shul is still standing till today. Um, basically, my ancestors went through very hard times. My grandfather is one of the only children of his family that came out from the Holocaust, managed to escape through a visa from Sugihara through a diplomat of Japan. He managed to get to China 
and from there got a visa to go to Canada. And he made it to the shores of Canada where he established a yeshiva. A yeshiva is a Jewish school, starting by knocking on the doors and getting children to study the Torah. And uh, my grandfather was uh, ready to get married, and he had my mother. And on the other side, my father's side had uh, come from Tashkent or somewhere uh, in Klimovich, which I would say maybe is near Uzbekistan. Well, they had to flee, flee there, so they went from Russia to Uzbekistan, and then from there they got to, um, uh, uh, I forget where it was exactly, but they managed to get some Polish passports, and they managed to smuggle themselves out of Russia to get to Poland. From Poland, they managed to get to France. From France, they waited for visas. Half the family went to Israel, and the other half of the family went to um, uh, America. My grandfather came to America and they didn't have a penny on them. They uh, managed to come with their daughter, one suitcase and a Torah scroll. That Torah scroll was brought to uh, Chabad uh, Synagogue in Eastern Parkway, 770 Brooklyn, New York. And uh, I believe it's still there today. My ancestors were very committed to Judaism live the life of Torah, which means to put, put your priorities straight. Know what you're waking up for. Know what you need to accomplish today. A Jew, when they wake up in the morning, they go about their day in a very, you could say, rigid way of focused of serving God from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. And um, my grandfather taught us that. And... Uh, I follow somewhat in his footsteps. I think I'm losing my flow. What else? No, do no, you're, you're doing great. You're doing great, Rabbi. Um, but I just kind of wanted to hear about, because we all hear about the Holocaust and we hear about these terrible events that happen, but like, I understand that you told us a little blip about how your family got here, but I remember you talking about how they were, they were trying to get to Brooklyn. Right. So there was a, uh, a law that uh, there were too many Jews landing in Brooklyn. And what year are we at? This is, I think, 1954 or somewhere, somewhere there. I'm not sure exactly what year they actually came over, but I think it was about 1954, 1955. Uh, my father was born in 1949 in France. He was a DP, they called them, displaced persons. They didn't have a country to go to, and... Uh, they managed to get the visas to America. They came to America, and he wanted to be in Brooklyn near his mentor, his Rebbe. As uh, my grandfather was a follower of the Chabad movement, the Chabad Rebbe's in Russia. Uh, but they told him that they, they wouldn't allow him to go there. They wouldn't help him set up there. So they negotiated, and they agreed upon, um, first they said Omaha, Nebraska, or somewhere in Idaho, or I don't know exactly where, but somewhere out there. And then my grandfather said, is there a shul? Is there a mikvah? Is there, you know, Jewish life comes around many different uh, necessities that a person needs around them, kosher food. And they said, no. And he said, well, uh, I'm not going to go there. And they said, well, let's settle uh, on Philadelphia. And my grandfather agreed to go to Philadelphia, where he started his own business and my grandmother used to knit um, wo uh, sweaters. Uh, he, she would uh, 
go out and sell the sweater and make a couple of dollars and then go out and sew another sweater and go out and sell it again. And she used to say, I know the value of a dollar because I work for it. So it's a very interesting beginning how they started to make their life in America. And as they say, it was a golden Medina. It's a golden country. There's a lot of opportunities here. You just need to get out there and work. And if you show that you're committed and you're rigid and you put yourself to it, you will be successful. And that's what my grandmother and grandfather did. They were very, very successful. They, they built a beautiful family. They had six children. And then eventually my grandfather had enough money. He bought uh, a house in Brooklyn and he managed to help save the streets of Crown Heights because at the time there were many African-Americans moving in and the neighborhood, the Jews were all moving out and they saved the buildings. The Lubavitcher Rebbe of the Chabad Rebbe suggested that they buy up all the buildings, as many as possible, to help save the neighborhood. Today, there's a beautiful Jewish neighborhood in Crown Heights in Brooklyn, a very, very strong Jewish neighborhood. Kingston Avenue is a great Jewish uh, place to go. You learn a lot there about kosher stores and just so many interesting things on that avenue. Many synagogues and many, uh, you know, just Jewish people walking up and down the streets. And my grandmother managed to buy a a storefront there and, and build herself a beautiful business of clothing and selling things. And they did very, very well for themselves. But it goes to show that you got to be you know, steadfast and committed to, to serving uh, your family and your goals to, to building what you want, which is a beautiful family. That's what you have. And that's, it's not only about pleasure and enjoyment, but it's also about hard work and about commitment and, and showing that uh, you have a, a value in life. There's a certain importance that you stop your work for Saturdays and so on and so forth. There's a lot to a Jewish rabbi's life. And uh, I'm just trying to give you a little background of where I come from. So my grandparents, both the ones in Canada and the ones in New York, did the, the same. They were very committed. They could have easily, you know, took a nice haircut and fit into the American society. But they chose to keep their beard. They chose to wear their yarmulke, which is their kippah, the, the head covering, which is uh, to show that God is in charge and, and he runs the world and your brain is gifted by him. By, by God that gives you the power to, you know, to go out in life and do the best you can. It's all a gift from God, and you got to recognize that every day. And that's what they really ingrained in their children. And eventually my mother and father met. They met actually in Brooklyn in 1973. 1973, my parents met, and they both had the same goals, the same ideals as to raise a beautiful Jewish family. And that said, it comes with a lot of effort. Um, My father studied for many, many years in the yeshiva. In in uh, first, it was he was in the school, a Jewish school in Philadelphia. But then eventually, when they moved over to Brooklyn, he went to the Chabad uh, Yeshiva Tom Chetmimim, the Lubavitcher Jewish school in Brooklyn, that the Rebbe set up. The Chabad Rebbe set up. Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, and there was a lot of understanding between each other that they were going to follow in the Chabad Rebbe's uh, role mo- as him being the role model, as him being their mentor, to follow in his path and try and do his biting, which is to 
give uh, influence others to also want a, a life of such beautiful uh, Jewish uh, saturation of goodness and, and enjoyment of having a nice large Jewish family. Saying a large Jewish family, my grandfather who came over, over from Poland to Canada, um, he used to dance every time he had a child. And many years later, when he was marrying off one of his grandchildren, there must have been about 100, 150 people in the picture because he had eight children. Each one had about 10. Um, he was crying and they asked him, why are you crying? And he said, because I'm proud to pay them back. He lost. He had nine siblings. He lost many of them, his parents in the war. And one of the things he always showed what was real value was having a child and that child going in the path of Torah and mitzvot, in the path of, you know, Jewish commitment. Uh, it, it was his greatest pleasure to see such a large picture that he was proud to pay Hitler, may his name be erased, back for all of that he lost. But he knew it would never pay back what they truly lost, but he was able to build with a positivity with a, 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 just a joy, his whole life he put to rebuild and really did a phenomenal job. He built a beautiful community in Montreal, Canada, and many of his children today you know, are all over the world. One lives in Brooklyn, one lives in uh, Tampa, Florida, my mother and uh, my uh, uncle in Israel and Tel Aviv, and then there's the uh, family. Gerlitsky is very few. He's the, basically the one that saved the name Gerlitsky from before the Holocaust. And that's due to his commitment to his um, holding on to his tradition, the way he lived in Poland. He brought it over to Canada and he said he's not going to change it and he's going to make it and flourish it and bring it, that value to his children and grandchildren. Today, most of his grandchildren are married and they also have about 10 children each. So it's a huge family. It's a beautiful, huge family. He, he would be smiling from ear to ear, you know, just to see all the beautiful family that he built. That, that, that alone, never mind what, what they're achieving and accomplishing. That, that's another whole world of things that the, each one went out to build another community in another place. And that goes with your um, question of how did I come to where I am at University of Tampa? University of Tampa is... Uh, so let, let's back up really quick, just so people understand. So there are a couple of terms you use, the shul, a mikvah. A shul is a synagogue where people gather to pray. A mikvah is a body of water. According to the Code of Jewish Law, it's mem sa'ah, 40 sa'ah, which is equivalent to, I'm not sure how many gallons of water, but it's a an immersion pool where an individual is cleansed, becomes pure from his impurities, um, especially uh, has, pertains to women. After the menstruation, they go to the mikvah and they could have relationships with their, their husbands. So that is a, uh, one of the campaigns of the Chabad Rebbe. And Rabbi then, Menachem Mendel Schneerson was to, to raise a family with family purity. And family purity means that the husband and wife should keep the mitzvah of mikvah, of going to immerse themselves in a mikvah. And then, that's awesome explanation. And then, 
the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Who is he? You mentioned him a couple times, but what? Why did you? Why did your family follow him? What? What was he doing in Brooklyn? Like, so the Lubavitcher Rebbe uh, goes back till the 17th century. Um, there was a great Rebbe. His name was Rabbi Schneer Zalman of Liadi. Uh, he was the founder of Chabad Hasidism. He actually was a grandson, a spiritual grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. Baal Shem Tov is the founder of Hasidism. The world was at a faint. The world was just blah, where people didn't have any vibrant uh, excitement in their practice and connection to God. And the Baal Shem Tov revolutionized a a new a new uh, way of serving God with joy, and and uh, and really showed. That even the simple individuals who just maybe read and recite Psalms, the Tehillim of King David, is so powerful in in God's um, uh, eyes, and it's treasured and it's important. And he sort of made everyone count. He brought everyone to have the meeting of minds, whether you're wealthy or poor, whether you're smart or you know Amara. It's an individual who doesn't ignoramus. So eventually um, the Alter Rebbe was, he passed away, he was in prison in Russia and, and managed to get out. It's a long story there in itself. Um, his son took him over, the Mittler Rebbe, and then his, uh, his grandson took over his son, uh, whose name was the Tzemach Tzedek, Rabbi Menachem Mendel. And they got the name Schneerson because the founder, his name was Schneer, Schneer Zalman. And so they became Schneer's son. So the, the original family name was Baruchovich because they went after their father's name. So Schneer Zalman, the great Rebbe who founded Chabad Hasidism, he, uh, his father's name was Baruch. So they called him Schneer Zalman Baruchovich. <laughs> then uh, his son, Dovber, they called him Schneur, Schneuri. And then eventually it stuck with the family that the name was Schneerson. Schneerson means the, the sons of Schneer. And eventually the Tzemach Tzedek, who was the grandson of Rabbi Schneer Zalman, his son, the Rebbe Maharash, Reb Shmuel, um, took over his leadership when he passed away. And then Reb Shmuel had a son, Reb Shalom Dovber, who took over his leadership when he passed away. And Reb Shalom Dovber had a son, Reb Yosef Yitzchak, uh, the, known as the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, um, and he took over the leadership in Poland from his father when he passed away. And he was at the time of communist Russia, where they did not allow you to practice or observe your religion. Going to synagogue, shul, <laughs> was one of the uh, no-nos, and showing any type of observance in life was one of those no-nos, and he said that he was going to fight till self-sacrifice to make sure that Jewish children should be able to learn the Hebrew alphabet, the olive base, and that they should know uh, how to read and pray, and that they should have an underground yeshiva. They made sure to have the mikvah still open, like I mentioned, the, the immersion place, that they could raise a proper Jewish family with family purity and really fought through the communist 
regime uh, party in Russia uh, against the NKVD, the secret police, to to just keep Judaism alive. Eventually, they arrested him. They put him into prison. They sentenced him to death, and then, with pressure from America and from followers of his in other countries, they granted him to leave Russia. But he must leave with leaving his books there and his family there. And he said, no, I'm not going to leave without my family. I need every single uh, member of my family. At the time, his daughter was engaged to Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who was the present-day Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he um, was just engaged. So they said, sorry, you can't go out of Russia with him. Find a different man in Poland for your daughter. And the Friedrich Rebbe, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, said, a man like the Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, you can't find anywhere else. And he pushed, and they allowed him to leave with him from Russia. And he wasn't allowed to go back to, to uh, Russia ever again. But he had some followers there that they got together and they swore that they were going to make sure that the, as long as there's a breath in their, <laughs> they have life in their body, they're going to keep Judaism alive. He went to Poland, to Riga, and then to Warsaw, and to Atwatsk, Poland, where my grandfather studied in that yeshiva there. And eventually, when the war, Second World War broke out, he managed to leave in 1940, come to the shores of, of America. And he said, America is no different, and we're going to establish the same type of yeshiva and Jewish life that was in Poland here in America. And he succeeded, very much so, in, in, in Brooklyn. And then my grandfather managed to do that in Montreal, Canada as well, and to many other places. As I mentioned earlier, the Lubavitcher Rebbe wanted that they should save the streets of Crown Heights. The Lubavitcher Rebbe saved Jewry around the world by sending out messengers to help strengthen Jewish life in every country, in every place in the world. There is a Chabad uh, synagogue or a Chabad rabbi that is there trying to help bolster and, and, and make greater the Jewish practice of life in, in their town or in their city. So that's great. And I guess then that moves us to our next point. What's Chabad? And what what does that mean? And then the yeshiva. Can you just describe this? Yeshiva is like a, a, a school. Uh, there's rabbinical college, and there's an elementary school where the children focus a lot more on the studies of Torah, the reading of Hebrew. So a child, when they're three or four, they're already taught the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, and then eventually grow into being able to read from a prayer book, from a siddur, which is a prayer book that they should be able to read themselves from the Psalms, from the Tehillim, and continue to read the Chumash, which is the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, uh, eventually read the prophets and, and, and study the Code of Jewish Law, and continue to, to uh, study in the Yeshiva and immerse themselves in the Mishnah and the Talmud, which uh, is just the foundations of building a, a, a Jewish life and, and being committed to, to serving God at every moment. So Chabad actually is an abbreviation. It's Chachma Bina 
Da'as, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. And that's their goal is to be that arm to bring out more wisdom, more understanding, and more knowledge of God. And that is through the, the wisdom of God is the Bible, is the Torah. And by teaching Torah and studying Torah, they help bolster that uh, wisdom and knowledge and understanding of, of God in the world. Um, Chabad ended up becoming a movement which was, don't just think about yourself, which many of the Jewish people, when they came over from Poland and Russia, was more to focus on yourself and try and build yourself up. Uh, the Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Endel Schneerson, wanted that his followers should go out and share their knowledge with the world. So that's where my parents, after 1973 getting married, um, were chosen to go to Central Florida to head the Chabad in Central Florida. My father established many of the Chabad centers in Central Florida with Orlando and Sarasota and St. Petersburg and, and, and uh, Clearwater uh, in Pinellas County and then Gainesville and, and uh, Polk and Osceola County, Lakeland and Tampa and North Tampa, South Tampa, you know, just the whole overall area of Central Florida. My father had a hand in help bolstering Judaism and bringing out Chabad rabbis, which eventually caused that the stores should carry a lot more kosher and a, a, a availability for people to keep kosher and eventually to build a mikvah so that people can keep the family purity and they should have a synagogue, a shul, so people could come and pray and study Torah and then eventually just help strengthen the Jewish community overall. That's awesome. That's amazing. I love the mission. So let's backtrack a little bit. And what was your, so what was your upbringing like? Like we're talking when you were born to basically how you got here today. And did you go to college? What, what was that route like for you? Definitely grew up like every other child. I would say, you know, dealing with uh, siblings and parents and growing in our, our, uh, uh, understanding of life. Mine was a, definitely an interesting one because my father was a self-sacrifice individual, you could say. You know, he didn't go and just buy his own house and live there until his children grew up. Because he was a follower of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, when the Rebbe said that it's time to build Judaism in a greater and an ex exponential way, he wanted that more synagogues, Chabad synagogues, should be available for the overall Jewish community and that the Jewish community should then ultimately do a lot more. Um, he, uh, he was trapped, you could say, somewhat in Tampa, Florida, before Internet, before, you know, availability of, you know, telephones that you could really, smartphones that you could talk to one another and see one another, maybe get an education on the internet. He was trapped with uh, having my sister born in 1974, my brothers to follow 76, 78, and so, sorry, 77, 79. I was born in 1981. And then my parents um, wrote to the Lubavitcher Rebbe saying, we need Jewish education, a real Jewish education. I mean, like the Jewish education that, thank God, my parents made that move that I got 
and it was extremely well. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe wrote to them that they shouldn't close their synagogue, their shul here, their Chabad center in Tampa, and they should move their children, not in the middle of a school year, make sure to do it in the beginning of the year, because I would say that the children have a greater uh, self-esteem and more strength coming in in the beginning of a school year than you enter into a classroom in the middle of a school year when everyone knows each other already. It's not uh, so easy to develop friends and really be successful in that school year. And my parents uh, chose to move us down to Miami Beach in 1981. But being that the Chabad Rebbe said that uh, they shouldn't close the synagogue, my father went and he would commute. For a couple of years, he commuted from Tampa to, our, to Miami, where we went to school in Miami. Eventually, it didn't really turn out to be that great. And my mother uh, and father wrote again to the Rebbe, saying that uh, Montreal may be a better uh, place, especially my mother was uh, from Montreal. Her parents still lived there, and my father was sort of commuting. He was that shliach that flies, that emissary who flies from you know, one place to another just to keep uh, Judaism open. Eventually, he hired other rabbis that took on the leadership, but was always involved in many of the Jewish growth of the Central Florida area. Um, so when my parents chose to move again from Miami, it was already 1981. I was born to 1983. My brother was born. And 1985 is the year that my parents moved us to Montreal, Canada. So I was just about five years old. Maybe it was the beginning of the school year of 1986. So I was just about five years old when I came to Montreal and I went into the kindergarten or preschool. Um, I got to learn the olive bays and went into learning Chumash, starting with Genesis, Beratius, going into Exodus and studying the Navi. Throughout all the years of my upbringing, um, was very, very well immersed with Judaism, a little bit of English study. To, you know, to be able to know math and science and a little bit of, uh, um, you know, just history of different things. I guess it was then the French were <laughs> trying to become in charge of Montreal. So it was a little bit chaotic because there was a later on a little fight and many people left. And there was just the history in Montreal was uh, they lost a lot of business to Toronto that year, the, those years up until 90-something where they made a referendum and they lost. So Quebec never became their own country, but they wanted it and they wanted that the language should change. So you really, the English wasn't just English. It had to be a little bit of French. I learned d'assitois, merci beaucoup, or so on, so on and so forth, a couple of Jewish, uh, of uh, French words that I remember. Um, but mostly was geared to Jewish life. And Fridays was always a half a day because you had to go home and prepare for for Shabbos, for Shabbat. And the preparation for Shabbos was just unbelievable, an unbelievable experience, especially for me because my grandfather lived in 95 and I really got to be like his child uh, in Montreal. And I mean, Thursday night, I would go with him to the bakery and he would buy the challah, the bread that we put on the Shabbat table, the two loaves 
and he would make sure the wine was ready. He would set his candles. So Friday was a half a day where we would prepare the, the home ready for Shabbat dinner, ready for the holy day of Shabbat. It wasn't just the dinner. It was a, a whole day, night and day, 25 hours of just spending a restful day in synagogue and study and meals and enjoyment. So let's explain that really quick. So what exactly is Shabbat and why is it so important? And then we'll get back into where you were in the story. So God uh, in his Bible <laughs> writes six days a week you should work and the seventh day you should rest. And the seventh day should be a day of God. Uh, uh, Shabbos Hashem. Shabbos should be for, for God. And one of the ways of doing that is by... Uh, getting to study a little bit more Torah, getting to pray a little bit more in the synagogue, getting to make many more blessings around your dinner table, your Shabbat dinner or your lunch uh, Shabbat table where you make a kiddush, you make a, on a cup of wine a uh, blessing and the family answers. I mean, especially when you have a nice large family, it's always, even with the nuances of a little fighting and everything else, which, which that is the way we educate and grow, and learn that life is not always the way you want it to go. And there's always maybe someone else there that you need to compromise and, and, and grow with. Um, Shabbat was always very special for me, especially there with my grandfather, because he really lived a, a, a life of focus on preparing for Shabbat the whole week. Why do I work six days a week? So I could rest on Shabbat. And, and Shabbat, just to bring it in, Shabbat's at sundown. You have a nice dinner with all of your close friends and family, and then you phones are gone, electronics is gone, no no work is done. So you don't turn on lights, you don't do anything. And then all of Saturday is with prayer and spending time with family. And then once the sun goes down that next day, then you're allowed to get your phone back. And a lot of Jews observe this. Is that correct? Or correct. Most of the Jewish world in Israel and around the world uh, today, a lot of people observe the Shabbat. And it is exactly just the way you said it. There's no electronics. There's no driving. There's no, um, you know, anything that's really going to make you feel like weekday, you refrain from it. It's more about spending time with your wife and children together going to the synagogue hearing the reading of the torah we jewish people read the entire book of the torah every single year and every single week we read one portion and every single time we finish the book it's an excitement it's a, it's a, a it's a great accomplishment it adds to the purity of the world spreading god's word in the world just by pronouncing it and putting it out there having other people inhale it is a great way of keeping the world going and moving. Um, Shabbat dinners are, are, are just the great place for where children learn a lot and enjoy a lot. It usually starts with, the Talmud tells us that you should have a little bit of fish and meat. But the truth is you shouldn't eat fish and meat together. You, you, you got to rinse your mouth in between. I remember my grandfather always saying, which means in Yiddish, you have to rinse out the mouth. Uh, what would be, would, he would come home after the synagogue service. It would be in Montreal, sometimes in the summer, it would be 9, 10 o'clock. In the winter, it could be you know anywhere between 4, 5, 6 o'clock. 
And uh, after the synagogue, they would come home and they would uh, pick up the singer Shalom Aleichem, which is a beautiful melody that's sung in all Jewish homes, and then eventually make the Kiddush, which holding, holding the goblet of wine, uh, standing around the table, all the family and children. I remember sitting by my grandfather's table was just something that uh, you, you just feel secure. You feel like you're in a good place. You're just in the best place. It, he's not going to whip out a phone and start texting somebody else. Impossible. He's not going to start, uh, you know, I have an emergency. There's no emergencies. It's Shabbos now. Shabbos means rest. Shabbos means relaxation. Shabbos means enjoyment. And uh, it's just the, the greatest thing to know growing up as a child, getting to sing with your grandfather at the meal. Your grandmother prepared a great uh you know, course of fish and salad, and that wasn't it. Then there was chicken soup and matzo ball, and the, and just the, the the songs was were just as warm in between the fish and salad, and then the, the 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 words of Torah that came out were just as great in between the chicken soup and the chicken and and the, and the meat that was at the next course, and then the the. The, the stories, the Jewish stories that he shared were just as great and, and delicious as the dessert, the jello that my grandmother used to make for dessert. It was just, an, or an apple, baked apple. Uh, it was just the, the greatest feeling. And then to go home and him smile at you and hold your hand. It was just something special growing up in that environment. And I went through that yeshiva in Montreal up from 1986 through... 2000. That was about 14 years of my life. Um, after that, I went to Israel and I studied in the yeshiva in Tzfat, in the north part of Israel. Um, and after that, I returned to Brooklyn, where I got my studied for my ordination through the next four years, from 2001, 2002, through 2005 when I met my wife, who uh, comes from Melbourne, Australia, and also has the same goals and similar background, and was raised also, you know, from a Russian family who also must probably escape the border. The same idea with Polish passports getting out after the war, because many of the Poles went into Russia retreating from, from the war, and then after the war, they wanted to leave back into Poland, so many of the Jewish Russians realized that that's an opportunity to get out of Russia. So my wife's side is as well the same uh, story of how they managed to get over. But my wife grew up in Melbourne, Australia, a whole different uh, world. Um, but back to where I was explaining about Shabbos, you know, my wife had the same upbringing, same values, and we knew that that's what we're going to have in our home. And we're not just going to share it with our own family, but we're going to open it up for students. Wherever we would live, we were going to open it up for others to come and enjoy and, you know, live it and feel it. Um, that's amazing. I really enjoyed hearing that. So was your transition of going from Montreal to Israel to Brooklyn, is that a normal occurrence or was that unique to you or because – a lot of the people listening probably think of the regular school system where you go 
grade one through 12, like you go elementary school, middle school, high school, college. What was, I, I, so I just want to get a better understanding of what your breakdown was and why those years in Israel, why in Brooklyn, just elaborate it, on that. I, I think it really had to do with where you were being raised. Um, I was being raised with my mother and my grandparents in Montreal. My father had his job cut out in central Florida, helping Judaism grow there and bolstering and opening up more and more Chabad centers. And uh, just the fact that we were there, I think schooling-wise could be financially the reason why we, yeah. we, we stayed there. You know, Canada had some social medicine. Yeah. And it was just a, a great place to get raised, that's for sure, because um, the, that generation, my grandfather's generation, was very, very um, active in Montreal at the time. And you really felt Judaism, you know, just going to the synagogue and praying wasn't just like, you know, there's a couple of people getting there, but these guys were living it. Yeah. They were really in it. They, this, their whole life was based around it. You wake up in the morning, you go for the morning service. You study a little bit, you go to work, you go after work, back to the synagogue for the afternoon and evening service, you go home, you eat supper. You, you, the, the whole life there was just an amazing Jewish uh, real feel. It, it's just, I wish everyone could have that <laughs> education of, of, of being raised in such a Jewish environment. Yeah, I love that. So... What you were talking about, diving into all the what uh, was your grandpa and how he was a great rabbi, but so then, so then the question to you is, what does it take to be a successful rabbi, and what does that mean to you? Well, I would say uh, my grandfather was a very successful rabbi, and I think that I learned from him to be a friendly, happy, positive individual. And that will make an impact on your surroundings that will eventually feed into others around you to want to gravitate to that type of uh, lifestyle and success. So my grandfather, um, you know, could have cried poverty and could have, could have cried, uh, I need a therapist after losing all of that he lost. Nevertheless, focused on this success he could make with the little that he had and even though it was maybe even just a little shoestring but he made it grow he made it into a great huge uh family and and made a real impact in the world from his uh choice in life of following a observant life you know, with all of the commandments, such as I said, family purity and study of Torah and prayer and observance of the commandments, and really, really um, established a, a, a great tree with great roots that really give great shade, which is nourished from great waters and just a, a, a great... Um, uh, a great story. He, he really built a great story. And I think that that's really the success of, of every individual. No one's going to get it exactly right. You know, everyone has their unique situation and their unique life. And we can always go back, like I said, to getting uh, 
down and feeling hurt or you know troubled but those things are not going to bring you the success i mean it's good sometimes to go down in order to climb up but the main focus is that uh, you have strength that god has given you you go out there you share what you have you share what you what you what you're there to give and if you try you'll succeed that is success success is trying and doing your best um how i landed in tampa was that my father and mother went into a private audience with the Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Endel Schneerson, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he's known as Lubavitch and Chabad because is the teachings of Chabad Hasidism, which is, like I mentioned, Rabbi Schneer Zalman of the Adi, Chachma, Bina, and Das, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. And he's known as Lubavitch because they lived in the city of Luba, the city of brotherly love, and they called it Lubavitch, his ancestors, his grandparents and great-grandparents lived there, and therefore they, they got the name Lubavitch, as many people, when they came over from wherever they were, they usually called them, oh, you're Boruch from, uh, you know, Zhitomir, so he got the last name Zhitomir, which is really a city in Ukraine, but that's the way people got their last names then. It was, wasn't like, you know, oh, your grandfather's name was that, it was sort of where you came from and who you were. So my parents came to Tampa, and I saw a need for Jewish life here in Tampa to, to thrive and grow. I saw there was nobody at University of Tampa reaching out to the students. And why go somewhere else when you could be near your parents and help them continue? As your parents age, they need help. They grow older, and someone else needs to take on the responsibilities. And I thought that this would be a place that would be good a good position for that to be able to help them and at the same time slowly give them the opportunity to um, give some of the responsibilities to me as they get older. Awesome. And what is, you've mentioned Judaism and you mentioned all the excitement about it, but what's the real importance of the Jewish religion and why should, if you're Jewish, like someone listening here, Maybe they haven't really cared about Judaism that much. It hasn't been that relevant in their life. Why should they care? What's the importance about being Jewish? It's important because you were put here in the world for a certain mission. Every person that's here in the world isn't just by happenstance, by accident here. They're here because God wanted them to be here. They're here because they have a certain mission in life to share with the world. And if you landed in a Jewish home, it's because God wanted you to be Jewish and live that Jewish life and be able to share who you are and what your identity is to the next generation. Otherwise, you know, if you're here just for pleasure and enjoyment, then slowly you just dwindle away as the iPhones went away, <laughs> or any, any technology that came, and now it went. I mean, you know, just the rotary phone is no longer here. No rotary phone. Even the regular phones that we grew up with uh, are no longer the, you know, touch button. Today there's smartphones, and, and you, you slowly go away, but you got to also remember where you come from. And in Jewish life, it's so important to understand that you have a special identity 
you were chosen to be ambassadors to the world to bring light, hope, which that's what the Jewish people, Israel, is all about. So no matter where you are, never think that you're insignificant or I'm just this little Jew. There's no little Jew. You are Jewish and you are power. You are power because you're the CEO. Yes, you are special. You got to look at it like that. You are special. You could make a big difference if you would just capitalize on your gift that you were given. Your DNA is that you're Jewish. If you run away from it, you end up taking away your, it's like a, 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 a farmer who could really be a diamond dealer and he chooses to be in the farm. I mean, you have to realize your gift and your greatness that God has given you. And to be part of the Jewish people is the, a gift that you shouldn't shun away from. You should run high with it, be proud of who you are, be proud of, you know, we, we, first of all, that's the way you make a sale. If you're not happy with your, who you are, with your quality, why should anyone want to uh, buy anything from you? You know, you're, you're not really who you are. You got to be proud of who you are and study who you are and what you are. And so it's so important as a Jewish person to study the Torah and study the commandments, understand who, what you're, even though you weren't trained or educated in it today on the internet, you could get so much Jewish information in, in everywhere. Uh, you know, uh, there's just so much to study and learn. So to be Jewish is something that you shouldn't, if you're Jewish, your mother is Jewish, you should never want to Put it away. It's a gift that you could give on to your grandchildren, great-grandchildren. I'll give you one example. My grandfather spoke Yiddish. Ich rede guten Yiddish. I speak a good Yiddish. And the only reason why I speak a good Yiddish is because my grandfather never left his Yiddish. If I wanted to speak to him, it was in Yiddish. And ich wollte gesagt zu mein Zeder, kum, megein in Schul. I would tell my grandfather, come, we're going to shul together. Or we would sing a Jewish song together. And I could speak English. I could speak Yiddish. I could speak Hebrew. And it only enhanced me. It only advanced me. So if you're Jewish and you study the Torah and you know its commandments and you, you could only enhance and make better and greater your surroundings, your environment, your little world, and eventually it impacts the whole entire world. It brings stability to the world. To know that you're a proud individual of who you are and where you come from. Very important to be Jewish. Not just say I'm Jewish, but act it and practice it and study it. Because that's what will make your future with values that your children and grandchildren will want. They'll see that you have put down a peg in the ground. This is my lifestyle. This is the way I go. And they'll respect you for it. The, as it's always, we're always special because we have kept our practice, our Shabbat, our Torah, our uh, circumcision, bris milah, our just education, educating our children. It's so important. And if I could convince you to be proud of who you are, I guarantee you in whatever business you go into, people will want to gravitate to you and they will want to learn from you and they would want to hear what you have. Because you are a proud individual with God's gifts that God gave to you and that you're not ashamed of it. 
you're going happy with it. And that's respect, respected. It's a respectful thing that every individual should realize. Never throw away your history of where you come from. Enhance it. Advance it. Make it greater in a positive and good environment in a good way. Oh, that was that was unbelievable. I really, really enjoyed that. And it, it gets me excited about the Jewish religion. Um, so thank, thank you, Rabbi, for um, just helping me along the way. I mean, we still have a couple more questions, but I, I do appreciate it because you are so passionate and you bring that every single day. So... I think this would be interesting to a lot of uh, the listeners out there. What are some of the rules of being a rabbi? And let, let's just uncover it a little bit. So we see you guys running around with your 10 kids and exciting families and moving around. Everything's going. But what are the rules that you guys follow and and what's the reasoning for some of them? So, again, it, it does base itself on the – Chabad Lubavitch um, mission, which is to be an educational arm, be out there to teach the way of Jewish life. And what better way to do it if not with your own children? I mean, it does show a future. If you don't have children running around with you, then who's going to do it tomorrow? Um, it does show that there is uh, growth with children. And... Um, the, the style of life for a rabbi is rabbi really means a, a mentor or a teacher, um, a teacher that uh, doesn't just teach in speech, but also teaches in action. Some could be a rab pulpit rabbi where they give great sermons, and some could be a rabbi that gives a you know great Torah class, and some could be a good rabbi who knows how to pray and and be a good example in how to pray and, and, and don the tefillin and so on and so forth. There's some that could be a good rabbi in writing a get, which means divorce. And he is well-versed in the laws of divorce. And then there's some rabbis who are well-versed in kosher and they have the, their kosher supervisions that they, they run. And then there's a rabbi that could be, uh, you know, just in education, just literally a teacher of children, whether grade one or grade two or grade three. Then there are outreach rabbis, which I consider myself one of those outreach rabbis, as my name of my organization is Beis Menachem Chabad, which means the house of Menachem, which that was the Lubavitch Rebbe's name for the seventh Chabad Rebbe. His name was Menachem Mendel. So I named the organization called Beis Menachem Chabad. And it's supposed to go with that attitude of loving another just as you love yourself. What you don't do to another don't do what you don't want done to you. Sorry. You don't do to another. Um, it's the foundation of Torah. Everything in the Torah is based around that. Love your fellow as yourself. And to live that way, uh, it takes a, a lot of effort, a lot of effort. First of all, you have the family planning of how many children God gives you is a great blessing. Everyone is a blessing. As I mentioned earlier, my grandfather woke up my mother when they had their youngest daughter in the middle of the night and says, it's time to dance because we had another uh, daughter. It's time to dance. And my mother says, till today at 12, 1 o'clock in the morning, she remembers jumping up and down on her bed that another Jewish child was born. And I learned that from my grandfather. Every child is a gift. 
if it's a great company, don't close it. <laughs> That's what I say sometimes to people that ask, why didn't, why didn't you only have two children or three children? I said, why would you want to close such a good company? You know, it's a great blessing every, every child that's there and uh, they run around with you in the outreach because they're part of your family and if your job is to go hang up signs to let students know about Shabbat dinner or to let students know about where they could put on tefillin or they could know about where the next Jewish Torah class is it's so important where the Jewish synagogue is or where they could get some kosher food and so on and so forth they're really a part of the life and they set the Shabbat table and they put together, um, you know, different teachings that they, they were taught in school. And they share that at the table and students enjoy that immensely. And that was my focus and goal was my wife's as well to come to Tampa, Florida and to help Jewish students during these years that I'm able to and available to run around, you know, from 2010 through now to 2020. It's uh, no one else was there to do it, and I'm the one that was given that, I would say, honor and, and great uh, uh, enjoyment to be able to use your life and share the richness of Judaism to others that weren't granted that Jewish education because their ancestors chose maybe we should hide and not maybe it would take away our success if we you know, showed out how religious we are but my grandfather took the route of if you show how religious you are you get respected and you grow in that and you know there's advantages and disadvantages you know everyone but ultimately if you want to have a beautiful jewish family you gotta you gotta just really live it because as the world goes people change quickly 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 everything just goes down and down and down before you know it if the bar is not up at the ceiling, you're going to be at the floor. you got to raise the bar a little higher so your children should be somewhere and practicing and observing and eventually being able to give that over to their children. And the whole hope and ultimate goal is really that the Messianic era should come, Mashiach, as we say in Hebrew, the anointed one, God is going to send us Mashiach, Tzitkenu, the righteous redeemer, and is going to bring us to the land of Israel with the uh, building of the third temple. And then the world, everyone will be able to say, I see God. I know it. I know it. I see Hashem. I see God in the world. And that's um, just something I'm sharing from my heart. That After living all my years and having my six children with my wife, I can't say anything else but to desire a beautiful Jewish life as such. That's an amazing story. So I, I know everyone's thinking it. How did you meet your wife? Yes, uh, it's a long story. I dated a couple of young ladies. Um, oh, and how does that process work with dating in the rabbi? Like, do it, you, you guys aren't, are you allowed to do it or you don't do it? Or So in Jewish life, um, it goes through a shatchan. The Shatchan is a, a matchmaker where, um, in my time at least, I, I'm sure it was different in previous generations, but in my time, um, they would suggest a name and you would do some research. Um, they would do some research, research about you and the parents would call the Shatchan, the matchmaker, and they would say, yes, we are interested in this family and this child, this uh, young lady. 
and uh, they would call the matchmaker and say, yes, we're interested in this young man. And they would grant us permission to meet. And they would give us a time where to meet each other. And in my date and time, I would get a nice car. I think I picked up a rental. And uh, I went to the corner where they told me to pick my future wife up. And I picked her up over there. We drove for a little bit. I went to Tavern on the Green. I went to Central Park, went for a little walk. We spoke for about five hours and then drove her back uh, to where she was staying. I went back to where I was staying. At the time, I was teaching. I became a teacher in 2004. I was uh, teaching in Muncie, New York, uh, third grade uh, Hebrew studies, uh, the Chomish the, in Genesis. And... Um, I uh, dated for a couple, some, you know, date longer, some date shorter. With me, it happened to be a short dating period. It was about three dates, about 15 hours. And we both had same goals, same desires, same, just a lot of, a lot of the things that weren't red flags were, you know, green, green lights for me, kind, caring, uh, sensitive just an overall great person and uh i as soon as i uh understood from her that she was ready and willing to get married we drove to the rebbe's gravesite for the rebbe passed away in 1994 and uh many of the times if you have a good news or bad news you could write to the rebbe and you tear up your note in the rebbe's um gravesite it's called the ohel in Queens, in Old Montefiore Cemetery in, in Queens, and uh, Francis Lewis Boulevard, if anyone knows a little bit about Queens. And uh, we went there, and we wrote to the Rebbe that we are going to propose to one another, and we're going to seek the Rebbe's blessing. And we'd like that the Rebbe give us the blessing of raising a Jewish home. A It's called... Uh, to make a binyan ad an everlasting edifice, on the foundations of Torah and mitzvot. And we seek the Rebbe's blessing. And that's what we did. We wrote there and can't, can't turn back. It was just the greatest journey of 10 years serving uh, Jewish students, helping them out physically, Sometimes just move, you know, their stuff from their dorm room just to go into a, um, a uh, uh, you know, for the summer they needed to put their stuff somewhere, so they would put it into storage, and just to give someone matzah for Passover, or to help someone don tefillin, or give them a Shabbat meal and a warm Jewish home that they could really, really appreciate and grow with. That was something that. I, I will never regret it. And I will say that it will only grow and grow because positivity and goodness and kindness will never go away. It will never lose. That's great. So one more intricate question. So 15 out, like that's that's mind baffling to me because I know friends who have been dating for six years and still not married. And I know your rationale. Why are we not popping out the kids? <laughs> but what, like you said, it was kindness and all of that. But 
how do you really know that fast? I will ask the one that's dating six years if they know anything more than they knew in the first week. <laughs> you never know until you actually live together and are on the same page in building a home. And it does take effort. It does take effort in um, working together. When you live together under one roof, there's nobody that's not going to not have an argument or, or a disagreement. You live and learn. I remember when I was in um, teaching a little bit bar mitzvah lessons in New Jersey through the years when I was studying to, for my ordination in Brooklyn, I would go out to a Jewish community in, in, in Bergen County in New Jersey. I remember a woman telling me that after she got married, she was upset that her husband took the closet on the right for his stuff, and she was with the closet on the left. And instead of, you know, working it out, she left the house and went to her parents' home upset. And the mother and father told her, sorry, out. You got to go back to your home and figure out your own problems and take care of them. So life, no one's going to have it rosy the whole time. It's never going to be always perfect. God didn't create us to be perfect human beings. He created us that we should be able to use our talents and our intellect and our uh, abilities to develop and grow a a, a comfortable and, and peaceful home. It doesn't just happen. It comes with effort on both sides. As my grandfather sometimes said, you treat her like a Malka, she'll treat you like a Melech. If you treat her like a queen, she'll treat you like a, like a king. It's the way it goes. And there's always, you know, kings have wars <laughs> and queens have, you know, discomforts, but we work them out. And if you're understanding of that you don't need six years to date on the contrary when do you want to raise a family as you grow older and you become 40 and 50 i know people that they wish they would have been told at 24 to get married because now they don't have children and they don't have a, a home they they wish they could have built a home but when they did when they were able to have they didn't want and when they want they can't have that's the way god made it that at this age between 20 or 18 and, and 40 is the time. And we somehow got caught up. We need to get our career. We need to have our, you know, all that will fall into place. But now's the time that you could have children. A gift that is so special to be able to be a father and teach your child and show him the ways that you were taught. It's such a great gift. And you don't want to just throw that away, even for the best career in the world, because that ends too. You know, there's an ending and all that. But when you have offsprings and you have futures of children that go in your path and they're there to help you and support you, eventually, you know, it takes 20 years to get them there, but it, Eventually, they're there to, 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 to be there and, and, and help you as well. So, obviously, you know, there are challenges with raising children. I'm not going to, but I'm bringing out the rosy side of it, that, that the greatest gift is to have. The Torah says that 
It's the first commandment in the Torah that God says to Adam, says to Noah when he left the, the ark after the flood. He said, now build the world, have children. Fill the earth with your children and it will not lie dormant and it will grow and it will be great. So important to build a family at the ages that the, your natural uh, uh, time of having you know, children is so important to have it at that time. So how many kids are, are you thinking? Well, as I mentioned, my wife is the oldest of 14. I'm the five of 10, number five of 10. And whatever God is going to give you, obviously, you know, if you end up with, you know, a situation where someone's not well or, you know, yeah. you could always speak to your rabbi or mentor, and, you know, really discuss it and chew it over well to see if you can make more, uh, you know, slight changes but usually if you're an optimistic individual challenges only come for a short period there's yeah. such a great thrill after you feel like you can't do something and you do it yeah. it's such a great blessing and uh, i hate to say that someone that could have that opportunity of having children and just because they were scared or they had fear or whatever it was that talked them out it, it's just not the right position to be in. You got to get out there and, you know, if you're a stable guy and you're really committed in building a home and having children, I don't think any number is too small or any number is too large. I think that's more like it. I mean, it's just the greatest gift to have children and be able to raise them and to go in a good path. It's... You know, your lifestyle may change drastically because you have so many children. You have to send them to camp and send them. But you know what? You live a modest life. You don't buy or get all the gadgets that you really, really would enjoy. It's not about enjoyment always. It's also about values and, 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 and important choices that you make that eventually give you residual uh, dividends yeah. later. Okay, yeah, because that was going to be my next question. Where is the financial element coming in, coming in and you just think sacrifice? You have to definitely sacrifice. In, in life, when you're raising a large family, you definitely, I mean, I don't buy like other people buy. I don't go to the retail stores and buy my cucumbers and tomatoes. I literally go to the wholesale markets and I buy by the case and it does it's much cheaper it's most probably about the same amount anyone would spend about a family of four and I think that it it does work out at some point you have to be creative definitely to you know to figure out how to how to go about it but there is that faith also that if God gives you you can handle it there's nothing that God will give you that you can't handle so if he's giving you something, don't ever think that you cannot make it. You will make it. You can make it. And you should know that God is going to give you the strength to get through it and make it. That's amazing. Um, so I guess we got a couple more questions. So at this point, what's, 
what's your what would your dream be like where where do you want to go like like how just tell us how old you are right now i am now 38 married 15 years with six children i would love for the world to come to the era of mashiach that would be the greatest thing and what do you mean by that what do i mean by that where the world will everyone will know god it will be a godly world. It will be a special world. There will be no jealousy. There will be no illness. There will be no uh, um, wars. There would just be a world of peace and harmony, a world of goodness and kindness. That is one of the 13 principles of faith that Maimonides taught. An imam in Bermuna Shalema Bevias HaMashiach, I believe with complete faith in the coming of Mashiach which is one of the fundamental elements of Jewish life and faith, uh, to, to believe in that era that my grandfather, even after the Holocaust, his whole life was all about Mashiach is coming, that we're going to reach this era. So that's the key goal. But short term, in the meantime, <laughs> while we're still stuck in you know uh, our era and our nitty-gritty jealousy or you know eyes-desiring this new gadget and that new thing and this new house and that new car and that everything else that goes on with the rat race of making money and everything else. Um, my goals is really to bolster Judaism. So I'd love to build a nice big kitchen with a big, which a kosher kitchen, obviously, with a big dining hall where students would be able to come for Shabbat meals and, and, and study and, and get a good Jewish environment. Uh, overall, I would love to, you know, work that out with many of the other rabbis around me, support their efforts, even help bring out perhaps maybe other rabbis to other little college campuses or communities or or neighborhoods that can use another mikvah, another synagogue, another uh, Jewish school, another just another outreach center, just to to help. The people that are forlorn, that are a little bit lost from their uh, heritage and, and ancestry of where they come and the greatness and special things that they have that are in them that they, they don't really know because no one ever ignited it or said, hey, try it. You'll see it's going to bring out a great uh, uh, specialty in, in you. So my, my dreams <laughs> as a kid, I remember dreaming that I was going to get a skyscraper in downtown Tampa. And I would have on the top of the... <laughs> this is a real crazy dream, but you're asking me about what my... You have dream, a realistic... A, a realistic dream? No, 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 no. There's no crazy dreams. This is all realistic. With, all right. the, with the whole thing, I think anything's possible. Someone owns that skyscraper. That's right. So uh, why can't it be you? So keep going. So when, when I was a child, I remember thinking about, you know, Tampa and Orlando could be a mega city. And, you know, there could be a nice big skyscraper in Orlando and a nice big skyscraper in Tampa that has in it, you know, Jewish, uh, uh, from, from A to Z, Jewish life for, 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 uh, for uh, what do they call it? geriatrics, uh, the elderly, you know, having a, like a, a assistant, assisted living or even uh, not assisted living, but elderly that want to live in a place, yeah. in an environment, a community. Um, in the in the building, you know, this, these were like dreams of mine as a, a youngster, you know, 13 or 12 or even 11. And, you know, thinking about 
all the little cities around the central Florida area, like all the big cities have like this big skyscraper synagogue. Yeah. And then all the little cities have these little miniature buildings that service within all of the neighborhoods, being able to give everyone an opportunity at a place of walking distance to be able to tap into a place of study, a place of uh, study of Torah, a place of charity and a place of prayer. And that's really what the world is really founded on. The Mishnah tells us, our sages teach us, that the world stands on three pillars. Acts of kindness, charity, prayer, service of God, and study of Torah. Those are the three pillars that the world stands on. So as a child, I was always you know, dreaming that I would be able to... you know really impact a lot of people. Little did I know that they come out with the internet <laughs> and you could impact even without a building. You can make podcasts and you could do, you know, just the emails and who knows what. You could reach many, many more people as well through Zoom or other other things that are going on in today's pandemic. Yeah, so I guess we could dive into that a little bit. So with the court, so right now it's May 18th. 2020 we are in the middle of a quarantine how is the jewish population slash your community handling this so i'm not in a a big large jewish community of observant jews as in brooklyn or in, in israel where over there you know the synagogues are really really busy synagogues really have you know a lot of people mingling and touching and going around so in those neighborhoods they really crack down on no services, no, you know, gatherings together. So they would end up, you know, making a service on their porch or in the backyard and linking the other guy's backyard together. And Jewish life, the way you have a service is with a quorum of 10 because God rests in the presence of 10. And it's just very, very hard on those neighborhoods and communities not being able to go to synagogue for Passover, and now we're coming up to the next holiday called Shavuot, uh, where there's the priestly blessing, and, and it's so important to hear the Ten Commandments in the synagogue, and you need ten to go. You know, it's really, really hard on, on those Jewish communities. But in Tampa, it, we're a smaller community, and we're not with real observant religious individuals. Our community is based off of Individuals support it and, and, and like it, and they're willing to come once in a while to shul. It's not like we get 150 people coming into the synagogue. If we get 20, it's a nice Shabbat. If it's a bar mitzvah then or a bat mitzvah, then you know, we could pull 150 people. But uh, um, on a regular service day, we'll get 10, 15, maybe 20 people. Um, for Shabbat, we worked it out that we're six feet uh, apart and we keep our distance it's not like we have a, a big community where people are sneezing at each other um we put in a uh filtration of the air in in the building and we have uh you know extra washing hand station at the torah at the door uh wearing a mask if you'd like you're welcome to put one on and We've managed for two months being able to read the Torah and have a quorum of 10 uh, for the last two months. And, uh, you know, every place is different. You can't be a judge. You know, if a a fire uh, truck is going through your street intersection, you need to stop and let that fire truck go through. 
But the guys at a different intersection, they don't need to stop. They shouldn't stop. So, you know, Tampa hasn't been hit as hard as uh, other places in the world. Um, our senior rabbi has advised that being so, if we could keep our distance and we could keep our hands constantly washed, not touching your face and nose and wearing a mask at times if you'd like, um, uh, he felt that the, having a service is not going to uh, destroy uh, anyone or hurt anyone, as our governor as well uh, came out and said that prayer is essential and the houses of worship should remain open. So we have been remain open, but obviously not on the scale where we're encouraging everyone to come like we want to have a lot of people, enough to get by that the city should be spiritually uh, infused with the words of Torah being uttered into the city. And it helps. It brings cure to people in the city. Maybe perhaps that reason Tampa didn't have so many casualties <laughs> because the synagogue was keeping on, uh, you know, keeping its godly force rolling into the, into the city. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So now as we conclude, we can just kind of have you give a quick statement on anything you'd want people to do or people, any wisdom you want to drop. And then afterwards, I'm just going to ask you, if someone wants to reach out to you, how can they reach out to you? If they want to support you, how can they support you? And uh, yeah, that will be the conclusion. So just what's the wisdom that you want to give to the listeners? I think stopping Friday night and lighting Shabbat candles at sunset, right before sunset, is the greatest uh, comfort and, and peacefulness that a person could add to, his, to their week. Um, study of Torah, so important. So important to put in your gigabytes in your brain with all of the importance that you got rolling in there. So important to add a little bit of the wisdom of God, the Torah, study even one chapter. It would be such an impact in your day-to-day -day life, attaching yourself to the creator of heaven and earth. And just if you're Jewish, be proud about it. Be proud about it. Support it. Support others that do it. I know others here in Tampa, they said, you know, we don't really got it. We lost it. But we support you because we know that there will be a Jewish tomorrow because we see that you're passing it on to your children and grandchildren. So I would say if you want any more of this, you could reach me at bmchabad at gmail.com. That's my email, bmchabad at gmail.com. I'll give it to you the way I give it as on the telephone. B as in boy, M as in Mary, C as in Charlie, H as in Harry, A as in Apple, B as in boy, A as in Apple, D as in David, at gmail.com. You can go to my website, chabadut.org, C-H-A-B-A-D-U-T.org, or you can go to chabadofcentralflorida.com. And if you want a phone number, to you. I mean, I'll just put all the information in the description. Okay. My phone number is 813-504-4432. You're welcome to challenge me, call me. I'll try and do my best. Awesome. Awesome. This has been a great time spending time with you, Rabbi. And I, I can't thank you enough for helping me find my Jewish roots and find what it means to me. So I know you're helping a lot of people at UT and in the whole Tampa community, and everyone really appreciates the difference. So I want to say thank you to you all. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, we'll 
We'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. Who else really trying to fuck with Hollywood code? I'm with Marla G, bro. Flying Holly Grove chicks to my Hollywood shows. And I want to tell you something that you probably should know. This that slumdog millionaire Bollywood flow. And uh, my real friends never hearing from me. Fake friends write the wrong answers on the mirror for me. That's why I pick and choose. I don't get shit confused. I got a small circle. I'm not with different crews. We walk the same path. We got on different shoes, live in the same building, but we got different views. Thank you for reaching the end of the podcast. For that, we'll give you a complimentary coaching session in the link below with Edwards Consulting. Hope to see you there and have a great day and keep clocking in.